We're in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 14 this morning. Open your Bible, if you would, and read with me. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, a temple, uh, the first section in which there were a lampstand and a table and the bread of his presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was uh, the golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that had budded in the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and only but once a year. And not without taking blood, which he offers first for himself and for the unintended sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit is indicating that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of for this present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations of the body imposed until the time of the Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, the one not made with hands, that is not of this creation, and he enters into the heavenly temple once and for all into the holy places, not by means of blood and goats, the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, and thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer would sanctify for the purification of the flesh, then how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works? to serve the living God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning to you to give our hearts, our minds, our strength to your worship, to know you, to love you, to worship you. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to join our voices and our prayers in your presence that the way is opened. And we have come. And so, Father, even as we have drawn near to you, would you draw near to us and speak your word to us with truth and power that it may shape our hearts and our minds, that we may live wholeheartedly in your service. For in the name of Jesus, we ask and pray. Amen. In our uh, installation just now, we... Part of the vows is, is, is to um, the constitution of our church, and part of that constitution is the Westminster Standards. We believe that in those standards, the, the form of doctrine that is taught in the Scripture is captured in a condensed form that gives us something to agree on in terms of what the Scripture says and teaches. In the shorter catechism of those standards, 
The first question is the most well-known. Most of you, when I say it, will, will recognize the first question of the shorter Westminster Catechism. The question is, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end? What is, what is the purpose of his existence? Why do men and women exist? What is the chief end of mankind? Why are we here? What is it all about? And the answer that the Catechism gives is this. Man chief, man's chief end, humankind, men and women, our chief purpose for existing is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. What a pairing. Not just to glorify Him, but to enjoy Him, not just for a little while on a Sunday morning, but forever. And it's not just enjoying Him in some end in itself, but to, to glorify the God who has made us in His own image, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The purpose of our existence is to find our eternal, our lasting joy in the God who made us. We exist for Him. He has made us for Himself. Human beings... <laughs> on the planet, are in an all-out rebellion against their Creator. It's going on all around us. You see it in every way, shape, and form. There's a rebellion that is in full force of the human race against their Creator. Their chief end is not to serve His glory and enjoy Him, but to serve themselves and their own desires and their own passions and the things and the desires of their own heart. They do what they want, what is right in their own eyes. The world has no greater purpose than themselves. That's the way it is. If you don't believe in a God or have not looked to see who this God is, then the more secular our culture becomes, and it's more secular by the day, the more we are, we are disconnected from a God-centeredness, a creator-centeredness to a self-centeredness, and all kinds of things take place self-indulgence and rebellion. But the truth is that God has, according to his scripture, made us for himself. We exist for him, not for ourselves. One reason the human race is so lost and so astray and so wallowing in so much is that they have no definitive purpose for their existence of what it's all about. And so it is only all about whatever they're feeling in the moment. They have no God. <laughs> he made us for himself. We exist for him, for his purposes, for his glory, for the, for the moral fabric of the universe that reflects his character and who he is. But there are many, even in the church, who are confused about this, who don't understand this, who believe that God exists for me. Right? And see, we get this Turn it on its head. That's the rebellion. Instead of he made us for himself, we exist for him, for his glory, to serve him, to honor him, to glorify him. We turn it on its head and we think that it's all about my life and he's there to serve me, to honor me, to bless me, to do what I need, to do what I want, to make me comfortable and happy so I can indulge my selfish passions. Right? We've turned it around. He's our servant. We're not his. Even in the church, this goes on. We call it a prosperity gospel. And it's not that some of the things that, that, are, that, that are in the project, health, wealth, and prosperity, there are things in there that God is concerned about such things, but it's to turn those things on their head. And rather than, than God blessing us that we might be a blessing and to serve and to honor him, it's about God blessing 
me. It's about what the Lord can do for me. It's common to hear people justify acts of rebellion, saying that what God wants more than anything else is for me to be happy. Right? They, they justify acts of outright rebellion, disobedience, dishonoring, saying the main thing God wants in life is not my obedience and to his word and the things that he has said so clearly, but rather more important than all of that is my happiness. Right? God exists to serve me and my desires and passions. My friends, God made us for himself and our hearts are restless, trying to fill with purpose and meaning and happiness, trying to find it, trying to fill our lives with all these things, when trying to find purpose and meaning and happiness when God has offered it to us, created us for it. Our hearts are restless until we rest in Him, until our hearts have come home to serve Him. And to honor him where we find in the purpose of our existence the deepest of joys for which we were made. We will never find joy, true joy and satisfaction until our hearts believe, our very heart of hearts believe and understand that we exist for his glory. He, we are made by him and for him and everything is to him. The happiness that God intends. And my friends, he does intend our happiness. But the happiness he intends is a happiness that is in knowing him and loving him and worshiping him and obeying him and serving him for which we were made and in which he meets us and graces and blesses us. And so in verse 14, as we just read, what this section is telling us in arriving in verse 14 is this, is that God has done everything necessary to purify a people and to set us free to serve the living God, to deliver us from our rebellion, from our self-centeredness, to, to a freedom and a God-centeredness, to be who we were created to be, to be. And God has done all that is necessary. And so in verses 1 to 10, he describes the barrier to serving him, that the human race as we are in rebellion and that, that this sin has created a distance between the human race and God. And you can see that distance all around. And so in, in the worship of the Old Testament, that distance between God and his people is, is represented and illustrated in the Old Testament structure of religious worship in all of its ways. We see it described here in verses 1 to 10, the, the barriers and the distance between the holy of holies where God is and the worshipers outside, right? And he describes it here in verse 1. He tells us about the first covenant, the old covenant, the numerous regulations for worship and the earthly place of holiness, right? He says in the first covenant, they had these regulations. There's a whole bunch of them. And there's an earthly place of holiness. In other words, that, that God's, presence, God's holiness, is represented in a, in a small room at the back of the temple. 
Right? Of all the places on the earth, he says, I will place my presence with you. And at the center of this temple worship uh, structure, and at the very heart of it, there's a little room that is the, the place of holiness, his place so to speak. And then you have all these priestly rituals and the very structure of the temple itself is showing the distance between the worshiper and God. So we see in verse 2, he says there's this holy place. right? The, the, the court where the priests do their work. You know, their tent was prepared later. It went from being a temporary tent into the temple that was in Jerusalem and the first section of that temple on the inside in which there was a lampstand and a table and bread of the presence. It's called, in verse 2, the holy place. It's the holy place. But behind that, and that's verse 3, behind that, on the inner side of the temple, behind another curtain separated from the rest, was a second section called the most holy place at the heart of the temple. In the most holy place, he describes the things that are there. There's a golden altar and the incense. The Ark of the Covenant is there. It's covered in gold. It's got golden cherubim on top, these angelic creatures with their wings outstretched. And inside the golden Ark of the Covenant, there is the, the, the container full of manna, the tablets with the Ten Commandments, and Aaron's budded staff. They're all in this Ark, and the Ark represents the, the throne of God and the mercy seat of God in the midst of his people. It's all symbolic. There's a time his presence resided there, but all of this is it's showing us something. He is teaching us. That innermost room is sealed off from everything else. There's the holy place, and what the passage doesn't go on to describe is that the temple actually had four courts. You had the most holy, the holy of holies, and you had that outer court of the priests where they do their work, and they offer sacrifices, and they do their stuff. Outside of that is the court of the Jews, and that's where if you were not a priest, you don't get to go into the holy place. So if you're not a priest and you're a Jew, you can come to worship at the temple, and you're in that outer court, the Jewish court. Outside that is the court of the Gentiles. If you're a Gentile and not a Jew, you don't get to go in there. There's another layer of separation the Gentiles would go in that outer court. What made Jesus so angry is there's already all this distance between the Lord and the Gentiles who need, who need to know him. In that court is where they set up the marketplace and the money changers that Jesus drives out because they had literally said there's no place for the Gentiles here. But what we see is these, these layers from going outward to the world, the distance from, from God, and even that inner place is sealed off All of this distance, you can't go in. And in verse 7, it tells us that there's one guy who gets to go in. One guy, one time a year. And it doesn't say it here, but if you read the Old Testament, he would go in backwards with a rope tied around him, with blood in his hands. Blood to cover his own, like to cover his own sin before he could even cover the sins of them. And he goes in backwards in case he goes into the presence. This one man, once a year, you just don't go in there. He is cut off from the rest and he only goes in there to make a quick sacrifice for the sins of his people. And the rope's tied on him in case he dies while he's in there and he's struck down. In some way violating God's holiness. Once a year on the Day of Atonement. What is all of this about? In verse 8, it tells us, by this, he says, the Holy Spirit is indicating to us that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section in the outer courts exists. He's saying the way to God's presence is closed. There is a rebellion and there is a sin in the world. 
even amongst his own people, which is why there was sacrifice and the shedding of blood. The way to the holy of holies, the way into God's presence, the way to to know him and to love him and to walk with him in that nearness is shut. It's not until the New Testament where Jesus teaches his people to pray, our Father who art in heaven. The Old Testament indicates that Israel as a people are God's children, so to speak, that Israel is his child, a whole group of you, that God has created Israel and begotten you in that sense. But there is not one instance in the Old Testament, in all of Jewish literature, in all of the Old Testament, in anything that is written from before Jesus, where even a Jew would pray, Abba, Father, the way is shut. They don't know. They don't come that close. There's not that kind of an intimacy. And he says that the Holy Spirit is showing us that the way is not yet open. There are all of these barriers and layers and that the inner place of the court with this curtain, thick three-inch, four-inch curtain sealing it off from the rest of the world. The way is closed. For many of us, the way feels closed. And we'll get there because there's a way that it is opened. But he says it's symbolic in verse 9, that it is symbolic of this present age. What does he mean by present age? He, he, if you look at verse 11, he means this age before Christ appeared, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. He says, you know, in this present age, but when Christ appeared as high priest, all that changed. And so this present age, he said, is symbolic of this time, this period before the coming of Christ, before the one true sacrifice. In the time of the temple, in the time of the sacrifices, in the time of all the priests, when no, there was no perfect sacrifice, and so the conscience of the worshiper is not cleansed, there is not the forgiveness, the blood of bulls and goats doesn't cover any sins. And so there is still this barrier and and there's this picture in the end of the coming sacrifice, but in the end, the way is shut until the blood is shed and the blood of bulls and goats would not do it. There was no end to the rituals and the sacrifices. They still could not go. The people could not go. They could not say, Abba, the way is shut until, verse 11, When Christ appeared, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that were to come, when until Christ appeared and he opens this way, right? This is what, in many ways, the whole book of Hebrews is about. Jesus is the high priest of the good things that God had planned, the the time when God would remove all the barriers which represented all of our sin and rebellion, and when Christ would come and a blood would be shed that would actually cover our sins and cleanse our consciences and set us free and forgive us, all the barriers are removed. Jesus opens the way. 1 Peter 3.18 says, that Christ also suffered once for sins. And you remember we touched on this when it says that he died, he, he shed his blood once for all. Once for all. Like the last, we said he was the last sacrifice. 
It's the only necessary sacrifice. All the other ones simply pointed to that one. He was the last high priest offering the last perfect sacrifice. And so Jesus Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. We read he was tempted in all ways like as we are, yet without sin. He suffered once, the righteous one for the unrighteous, that he might do what? That he would bring us to God. That he would open the way into the holy of holies. And what he is doing, in many ways, that verse in 1 Peter is a summary of the entire book of Hebrews. How how we're closing the distance between us and God, that Christ came and suffered once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, the perfect one, that he might bring us to God, the way would be opened. He's explaining the newness and the freedom and the access of the gospel. And he's doing it in contrast to the barriers and the distance and the incompleteness of the old covenant. So in verses 11 to 13, he's telling us Jesus accomplished a perfect atonement. It's an atonement, as we're going to see in these next couple chapters as he wraps this up. He gets to chapter 11, which is the the chapter of faith. That's a rich chapter, and 12 to the end is more application. But in these last couple chapters of of unpacking the doctrine of of Christ and how he fulfills the Old Testament, he's telling us that that Jesus' sacrifice, where he enters with his own blood, accomplishes what all those tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of sacrifices in the Old Testament could never accomplish. He removes the barriers. And it tells us, and he does this, he enters heaven itself, right? This is what the verses are telling us, that he doesn't go to uh, uh, you know, the temple and the tent and pass through these human courts into this little tiny room in the back. It says he, he doesn't go into the temple at all. It says he passes into, that's just a picture, right? It's just a, it's just a picture of something else, Right? Where is the presence of God? In some little room, in some little building, in the middle of a desert country, a little desert country, in the middle of... Where is the presence of God? And it says he doesn't go there. It says he enters into, into the tent, into the presence, not made by human hands, not of this world. In other words, he goes into the heavenly places. He goes into the presence of God. He goes to God for us. And he goes to his presence with his own blood. That's where in verse 14, how much more will the blood of Jesus who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. You see the Trinitarian nature of our salvation. The son Jesus brings his blood through the power of the eternal spirit and he offers it to God the Father working in concert together to save his people. To purify our consciences from dead works to do what? To serve the living God. You see, that's the end. The chief end of man. (laughs) He does all of this and he says it and he wraps it up in that sentence. He does all this to purify us to what? To serve the living God. He accomplishes an eternal redemption as he calls it in verse 12. An eternal redemption. Once for all, it is finished. The way is opened for all who will put their love and trust in Jesus. And so when he says he's secured an eternal redemption, he he means 
for everybody in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Right? That the blood of Jesus is the blood that actually will bring forgiveness to all those who put their love and trust in God in the Old Testament. Abraham that we talked about who believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But that faith, that righteousness is not something that God gives out willy-nilly until justice is met in the death of Christ where love and mercy meet justice, where the wrath of God against our sin and rebellion is poured out in Christ. So, so the faith of Abraham that saves him, it saves him because Jesus died for his sins. And everyone, there's nobody saved in the history of the world. Old Testament or New Testament is not saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. It is finished for all who believe, Old Testament and New Testament. The temporary is replaced by the permanent. These finite sacrifices is replaced by the infinite sacrifice of the Son of God, that which was outward and temporary. It created a ceremonial cleanness to carry on in this worship this of distance. This is all replaced with the perfect, purified conscience of the believer through the death of Christ and the forgiveness that is ours in him, opening the way for us. Right? There are no more temples. There are no more priests and there are no more sacrifices. You don't need me to close your eyes and to bow your knees and to walk into that heavenly throne room where Jesus stands interceding on your behalf, who is your mediator between you and the Father, who said when you pray, say, Abba, Father, right? Who stands and so when we gathered, we don't... We don't go through all of these things. We literally, the great privilege, even as I close my heart to pray sometimes, I'm like, thank you for the privilege that we can close our eyes, we can turn our hearts, and we can come to you, Father. We can go. The way is open for you, for me. He is redeemed. Verse 12, an eternal redemption. In verse 14, he is purified. And why has he done it? To set us free. To serve the living God. Redemption is the language of the slave market. When you hear that word to redeem something, and in this context it's most often used, it's very common parlance in those days, the idea of redemption is, is to, is, it refers to a purchase price paid to set a slave free, to bring someone out of bondage, to redeem someone. To pay the price to set them free. And for all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus as Lord, it says he has purchased our eternal redemption, an eternal freedom. Freedom to fulfill our created purpose. And in 14 it says he purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. My friends, we were created for this. We were created to love him and to serve him. He has made us for himself, to glorify our creator, to enjoy him forever, to serve him with our whole hearts. That word serve there in verse 14, to serve the living God, it, it's the word latruro in the Greek. It's a, it's a religious service based in worship, it's a, it's a particular kind of religious service, ministry service, so to speak. 
It's not the regular word. It's a, it's a very specific one. It's the same word that's used in Romans chapter 12. In Romans 12 where it says, I appeal to you brothers by the mercies of God, all that Christ has done and that we've been talking about. I appeal to you on those mercies to do what? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. And that word worship right there, spiritual worship, that word worship right there is the word latruo. It's that serve that, we, that he has purified us to worship and serve him. And I think the NIV, it says, this is your reasonable service, your, your, your spiritual worship. And what does that look like? Well, he goes on to say, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, testing so that you may discern what is the will of God. Not your will. The world is in rebellion, doing what's right in his own eyes, loving itself, serving itself. When we're set free, it is to discern the will of God, our creator, our savior, to know his will, his good, perfect, and acceptable will. Why? So that we may do it. So that we may serve the living God. And so this service, as it's given to us in this text, this is your spiritual worship, this is your spiritual service, is the surrendered life. I I encourage you to present your bodies, that is your whole life, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Give yourself back to the God who made you. Give yourself back to the purpose for which he created you. Offering ourselves to love and serve the God who makes us and the God who saves us. And what does it look like not being conformed to this world? Its values, its priorities, its desires, its passions, its way of thinking. Right? It says, by the renewing of your mind. Right? Don't be conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not think like the world thinks. And the only way that can happen is if our mind is renewed according to the word of God. To think like God, his thoughts after him. What he thinks about the world what he thinks about you and me, what he thinks about all of these things. The world doesn't care. We're not to be conformed to the moral insanity that surrounds us. But we're to be transformed, purified, as he says in verse 14, purified from dead works, freed from our self-centeredness, freed from our slavery to our own passions and desires. Free to serve. Romans 6, 17 to 18 says this, Thanks be to God. You who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to know him and to love him. And as he changes our hearts and writes his law on our hearts so that we want to do what's right. We want to obey his word. We want to please him. We want to walk with him, right? He says, thanks be to God, you were once slaves to sin, but you become obedient from the heart to that standard of teaching you find in the word of God to which we were committed because we've been set free from sin. We've been redeemed from dead works, and we've become slaves of righteousness. Right now, he uses that language to be a slave of righteousness. It means we love it. We want to be righteous. We want to do what is right in his eyes, not in my eyes. To honor him. To live for him. Not just, he's not just forgiving our rebellion. He is setting us free from serving our rebellious self-centeredness to serve 
the living God, to become God-centered and Christ-centered. Titus 2.14 says it this way, Jesus gave himself to redeem us, to set us free from all lawlessness, from dead works, to purify our dead consciences, to purify a people for himself, of his own possession that belong to him, who are zealous for good works, who love to please him, who love to do his will, to honor him and not ourselves. And we're not talking then again when he says he, he, to create a zealous for good works. He's not talking about a few nice things that we might do. We have to go back to Romans 12 and say it's a whole life given over to follow him, right? To offer your bodies as living sacrifices. It's what Jesus meant when he says, if you want to come after me, if you want to be one of mine, then you will deny yourself Right? You, will, you will repent of your self-centeredness and your rebellion and living for you. You will deny yourself. You take up your cross, die to that old life, and you will follow me. You will serve the living God. A whole life that no longer serves ourselves, but is surrendered to our creator who made us, who loves us. One last one, 2 Corinthians 5, 15. It's the teaching of the whole New Testament in all of Scripture. He died. He died for all who will put their faith and trust in him, that those who live, that those who come to life through faith and trust in him might no longer live for themselves would repent of their self-centeredness and the idea that God is there to serve me. They no longer live for themselves, but they live for him who for them died. So the question is, for whom do you live? Do we live for ourselves? And the reality is, all of us at some level are a mixed bag. And a lot of life in what we call sanctification is figuring out where I'm living for myself and to start living for him. Where I'm, where I'm not obedient, figure out where I'm not obedient and become obedient. To where I'm not conformed and more like Jesus to become more like Jesus. And so we know that is a process. But in your heart of hearts, the question does become whether you'll make those switches, whether you will repent of your sin and put your faith and trust in the, in the newness of life that he's calling us to. At the center of that is the question, whom do you serve? It has to be settled at the very bottom of things. Whom do you serve? Do you serve the living God? Because if you do, when those things become known, then I repent and I grow by the grace and his power. My friend, all of it, do we serve him or do we serve ourselves? You know, your work ethic, when you go to work every day and you do whatever it is that you're employed to do, do you understand that it is not just about you? It is about the honor and the glory of the God you serve. Do you understand that how you spend your and use your money, that it's just not about you, that the, the way he has blessed you to be a blessing and to use those things for him and his kingdom, do we understand that, that how we have and use and possess our money is not just about you, but it's about honoring and serving the God who made us? Do you know that your marriage, how you love your spouse, it's not about you, it's about the honor and glory of God and the way that we love each other, the way that we serve, the way that we repent, the way that we honor each other, submit to one another. It's, it's not, and when I stand in it and we, in our marriage, it's, the bottom line is, is this pleasing to God? Is it pleasing to Him? 
Your moral and spiritual life is not about you. It's about obeying and serving the living God according to his word. Your commitment to his church and to his people, it's not about you. It's about the honor of God in his kingdom and what he is doing in his purposes. This life of joyful service, let me just close with this. This life of joyful service, and it really is when, when we serve and obey him from the heart, as he says, because, because he's changed our hearts and we love what he loves and we desire what he desires and we want to please him because we see him and know him and love him as Abba, our Father, this life of joyful service to which he is calling us, I have to tell you that humanly, humanly speaking, it is impossible. It is impossible. You can't do it. I can't do it. I want to do it. I bet most of you want to do it. And so we have to remember even in all of this, what he's telling us, the way is opened into his presence that he has become Emmanuel, God who is with us. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, it says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That we would draw near. The key to the Christian life and to all of this is the nearness of his presence. It's going to him and finding him. What does he say we'll find there? Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And my friend, it is always a time of need. And the way has been opened for that mercy and that grace day by day, moment by moment, fresh supplies of grace to forgive my sin and to restore me to a commitment to walk with him and the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us, the risen Christ. Will you draw near to him? At the, at the end of, of Hebrews, the question is like there's been all this distance. Jesus has abolished it. The curtain has been torn. The way into the presence is open. Will you go? Will you draw near to him? Will you worship him there? Will you know him and love him there? Will you find the grace and the mercy that is yours in his presence? Will you be filled with his spirit so that you may walk in the spirit day by day and fulfill all the things that he calls us to be and to do? Will you live in a daily dependence like a branch drawing life and strength from the vine? Because only then will we experience the freedom of the children of God. Colossians 3 says, whatever you do, at work, at home, at church, wherever, whatever, whatever you do, work heartily from the heart as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that it is from the Lord that you will receive your inheritance. You are serving the Lord Christ. That is the Christian life. You are serving the Lord Christ. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have not left us the way you found us. That you did not leave us at a distance, but the good things you had planned for us was to open the way, to let us come to know you and to love you as our Father, to walk with you under the smile of your grace, day by day, living for you, serving you, honoring you according to your word. Father, will you capture the hearts and minds of your people this morning that we would indeed present our bodies and our whole lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to our God. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.